This is a test of the Bounty Park Alert System. And welcome to episode 54 of the Boundary Park Alert System podcast. I'm Andy Halliwell, your host for today, and I am joined this evening for this podcast episode by Adam Keeley of Push the Boundary. Good evening, Adam. Hello, mate. You okay? Very good. It's uh, a great pleasure to invite our fan guest along today. Our fan guest is probably quite well known by a lot of people, maybe by his or when the Blues moniker first, uh, but his real name is Alf Bridge. And he's all when the blues moniker is BP 1960. So we'll have a chat to Alf, who has uh, quite a rich history in football. Good evening, Alf. Evening, Alf. And finally, for the first part of uh, tonight's episode, we're joined uh, very auspiciously by a 442 magazine journalist by the name of Hugh Davis. Good evening, Hugh. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me on. You're very welcome. Ordinarily, we would uh, kick off today's show by talking about today's game and getting into all things last. We're going to just do it in slight reverse because we've got Hugh with us. We're going to talk first about the fact that the media, national media exposure continues, which is which is great to see. So we just briefly asked before coming on air, Adam and Alf, we have both seen Football Focus today. Let me just start by asking you both, what did you make of the segment in Football Focus? I think it brings together everything that every Oldham supporter is looking for. There's a couple of people that spoke to at the protest, got it absolutely bang on as well, that we're not, we're not looking for glory, we're just looking for a bit of stability, a bit of guidance and a bit of a, a culture of being at a family club again. It's not, it's not a lot that Oldham fans are asking. Um, it's, it never has been, has it? Let's be honest. It, it was emotional watching it because every single person in that video wanted the same thing. When we all think about the basic points of what we want, it's not difficult to get there if you've got someone who's willing to put in the work as an owner to do it. But obviously at the minute, it's a lot harder than it needs to be. Indeed. Well, what, what did you think, Alf, when you watched it? I thought it was very good. It was um, surprisingly longer than I thought it would be. I think it was around about 15 minutes. So it was very good coverage. Uh, and then there was a statement, I think, right at the end from uh, on behalf of Abdullah, wasn't there? Yeah, indeed. Yeah, there was there was a statement at the end. No, I, I when I watched it, I felt a little bit emotional. If I'm honest, I got a, I got a little bit, I welled up a little bit because it it really uh, pulled on the heartstrings with some of that footage from. I know it's 30 years ago. Um, I know it's a long time ago, but some of that footage really it, it's still quite emotive for me to watch because I was a boy during that time, and um, and it, and it really makes you realise how far we've fallen in that in that intervening period. But yeah, we'll we'll come on to we'll come on to Abdallah's uh, statement at the end. We'll we'll, we'll review that. In a bit but um Hugh you, you didn't watch it today but the reason that you're on is you have written an article for 442 magazine that's due for publication next week is that right yeah that's right I think it's coming out a few days after your podcast it's because it'll be out on uh, Wednesday the 20th is it that's right but, um yeah well, we almost feel like we're last to the races so there's a bit of pressure on this feature now because you've had fantastic coverage the club has over quite a few places and now it seems football focus as well but when I started writing this a couple of months ago it only really just been picked up but the way the magazines work everything comes out a little bit slowly then it um, takes time but the good news about that is it's got a bit of a long tail now because I think um, when I spoke to a couple of Oldham fans they were really keen for it not to blow over and be the story of the week and this has meant, meant it's kind of kept on 
a bit longer and it's kind of kept the um, pressure on the owners a little bit to respond and kind of uh, keep up appearances if you like by talking to the media although they didn't talk to us we did offer some feedback and they said they'd get in touch and didn't there's a shock (laughs) (laughs) they haven't been particularly forthcoming with with most media vendors uh, for, for sure but yeah, no, I, I'd, I'd agree with you. We, we we were talking about this on the podcast a couple of weeks ago about whether the immediate interest will be intense around the arranged protest that Adam and, and his colleagues in Push the Boundary had, had organised for us. But actually it has elongated and the national media has kept an interest for the time being. I suspect we'll come back to this later, Adam, but we're probably going to need to think about new events for the media to cover in the future to keep this to keep this sort of story alive. But for you, Hugh, what made you want to cover our story? What was what was the catalyst for you as a journalist? Well, it's funny. Well, it's not it's not funny for, for you guys, but it's funny from the outside. I actually pitched a feature on Oldham in um, at the start of 2017 when you're in League One. Right. And the tagline I pitched it as was um, Oldham, where dreams go to die. And the reason was not because there was any relegation uh, on the on the horizon, but because I think it was twen- that was during the 20th season in a row in League One. And it was um, in the middle of eight finishes between I think 15th and 19th. And I was kind of wanting to get into... Good times, good times. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> it is now. And that's the thing. I was like, not saying fans would ever want relegation, but do you kind of have, did you have this thing of wanting something more than this? And like, would you want to drop down level to at least win a few more games and the answer in the end was really no because you look how it's happened and then you look how a lot of teams not a lot of teams but several teams have gone from league one straight through into non-league like Chesterfield and Stockport and thankfully Oldham look now like that might not happen but it's it's a real risk depends on whether Curl can do it so that interested me this idea of how do you support a club that just doesn't have much to celebrate week in, week out? And I spoke to, when I spoke to Oldham fans about it, it, you were talking about individual matches. It's not seasons. It's not, remember that playoff season, remember this or this great cup run. It's it's generally, do you remember that fantastic time we had when we came back against Peterborough or when we faced Liverpool or Everton in the cup? And then as it turns out, when it came to me a few years later, like actually interested in following this now, it's like, yeah, well, it's kicked off now in a very different way because after I pitched that about... Ooh, a year after, less than a year, about six months actually after I pitched it, and um, then a Lemsagam came. From a journalist point of view, obviously, uh, so you, your work in history is you worked at four four two before being freelance. I, I sort of had a had a quick look. So you're an experienced sports journalist and covering football specifically as well. Have you looked at Oldham Athletic and thought basket case for a long time? <laughs> no, I, I thought basket, no case, just dull <laughs> for quite a long time. And then, as you say, the last few years, it's really kind of it's got a lot more interesting. And then. Last season, I was like, what is going on here with this club that is scoring or conceding four goals a game? You know, kind of the second most goals in the league. What, what's going on there? And I want to find out why. Why has Kewell been sacked when seemingly he was doing not a great job, but not a horrifically bad job as to be fired? And then it just seemed to be kind of unravelling more from there. You look into more managers and more signings. I did a count, which I had to recount and recount, and it's 96 signings since Lemsagam came in in four years, which is just extraordinary. I, I just can't get my head around that. I think about nine or ten were released without playing even half a dozen games. It, it seems like you're the only club as well to have had five or six Ali Diaz in the last, <laughs> in the last couple of years. <laughs> but it's good. It's great that you can laugh about it because you laugh or you cry because you That's don't exactly that. it. That is exactly it. You don't want that national attention of look at this club. So no. I'm glad you won today. That was unexpected. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm personally, I'm absolutely delighted as well because it, it, it really does potentially give us an opportunity to, to try to 
you know, climb out of this mess because I, I was really, really concerned about losing out. And, and the, the worry is, Hugh, is the point you just made is many of us feel if we go through the trapdoor of Football League, it, it will be a long, long, long way back. Um, it, it won't be an easy bounce back for us, for all the reasons you've touched upon. Well, League um, Two is a really hard league to be relegated from, which is the good news. There's only two clubs go down. There's usually one basket case. And the trick is to not be that club. <laughs> so um, as we're doing say, our best. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As you say, going down, it's hard to do, but coming up is even harder. But, you know, a couple of clean sheets now out of the relegation zone today, isn't it? Yeah, and hopefully we'll, uh, hopefully we'll that'll be something to build on. So, anyway, it, so, so your article is out on Wednesday. So, for anyone who wants to go and purchase that, it's um, presumably available in all good news agents and online at the same time. Yep, it's got um, PSG on the cover. How different can you get? So, okay, you'll, you'll see that and then it'll be old and within. But, um, yeah, it was great to find out more about the club, even if it's in straightened circumstances and I hope it comes out for the best well thanks very much Hugh um, we'll look forward to reading that and um, thanks for coming on the podcast appreciate thanks for having you me. Um, good luck for the rest of the season good to see you Adam and Al well. yes. thanks Hugh look after yourself thanks Thank you bye. bye now right then gentlemen should we get into the meat of it let's talk about our beloved club and so before I do that Alf hopefully you don't mind me saying you are a senior citizen you are a main stand season ticket holder Yes, yeah, 76 year old now, been a Latic supporter since 1969. Wow. Well, mm. I, I, always, I always wondered if it was 1960 on the, on the basis of BP 1960. No, no, there's a reason for that, because one of my favourite players was Bobby Johnston. Right. And, and he was signed in 1960, so that's the year that remains oh, in my memory. Uh, I, I, saw see, the back, yeah. I saw the back end of 1960. 59, and it was a very, very poor team. I'll tell you, it was a lot worse than this. Was it really? <laughs> it was, it was, yeah. There was no doubt that, well, re-election was the case in those days, yeah. uh, and it was lucky to get back, really, um, because uh, that's how it was decided. It wasn't relegation. The thing that, 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 that most interested me about inviting you on a podcast, and I'm delighted you've come on, Alf, because I think it's great to have people of, of different experiences and ages, and, and we haven't had um, somebody on who's, who's got that sort of knowledge and, and bank of experience that you've got to date which is great but equally you are a former professional football scout aren't you and we and we were just talking briefly before we hit record do you, do you want to just explain your your history as a football scout to everybody yeah it, it started back in 1981 uh, i used to watch a lot of non-league football then and uh, went to watch um, a game at, at chatterton actually uh, when he played curzon ashton and curzon ashton had a good winger there by the name of steve wiggly I was quite impressed with it with Steve, so I wrote to Nottingham Forest. I had nothing to do with him previously, so I wrote to Nottingham Forest. And I'm surprised to get a reply there from the secretary. And uh, he said, well, I've been watched. He got him watched. And then a few weeks later, I took him on trial for two weeks. Uh, and then they signed him for £2,000. Wow. Yeah. Now, um, did, did you not write to Latics and tell them? I might have done. I might have done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I might have done. But Boris, I probably would have ignored it. Boris, yeah. Boris, <laughs> the reason I wrote to Boris was in particular was the, the signed players in the non-league, you know, Gary um, Birchall's Peter Davenport. Yeah. So I thought, well, well, they're interested in non-league players. Uh, so, so I th- well, I thought I'll try Boris. I wrote to them. They were very good, very friendly. Steve Wiggle actually went on. A couple of months later, he actually, after he left, he played in the European Cup against Glasgow <laughs> Celtic and had a great game after that, yeah. Uh, he stayed for a few seasons and was later sold, I think, for £650,000. Wow. Yeah. So that was a back then, yeah. well, the, the funny thing was that they asked me, have you any more like him? So I, I said, well, I've seen a couple this week. I've seen a lad called Eamon O'Keefe, but mostly you might, might have heard of Eamon O'Keefe's. Yeah. Uh, a, lot of, a lot will because he was a local lad. Yeah. But, yeah, so I said, Eamon O'Keefe striker. 
fastest, fastest boy I've ever seen, this lad striker. I went to have a look at him again, and he said, 26-year-old, too old. So I thought, well, that's their opinion. About two months later, he signed for Everton for £25,000 and went on to play for the Republic of Ireland. <laughs> so age is no barrier. They're good enough, I, I often think. And then, this is, this is the best one of all of this. I saw, by accident, this one. Went to watch a big cup match at Stadium East Celtic. They played a team called Towlaw from the northeast. This, uh, this winger for Towlaw in Run Riot. And I thought, this, this lad is really good. It was brilliant. So I wrote a deal about him and I said, have a look at this lad. So they said, yeah, we've seen him. They said, he'll never make a football league player as long as he lives. So I thought, well, there you go. That's opinion. Now, now that was Chris Waddle. Really? <laughs> yes, that was Chris Waddle. Blinking so, that, so that's that shows, I would say, about opinions. Because I think they thought he might... He, he had that gait, that lazy gait. About yeah. And they probably thought he was a bit lazy. But I didn't see that. I thought it was... I saw it as his running style. Yeah. Uh, and his ability. But then again, a few months later, he was sold to, to Newcastle United. Well, I, I, I always thought Ian Marshall Ian Marshall had that sort of uh, languid yeah, role. Yeah, I do yeah. kind of like that. I kind of like a lolliping gate. Yeah, Steve Ridley had the same thing, by the way. Yeah, he had the yeah. yeah, gate. Yeah, they're kind of striding lolliping gate. Yeah, yeah I, kind of, I kind of like that. It kind of puts defenders off a little bit, I, I find, yeah. And from then on, I stayed at Forest for a while, and I worked personally for a, a chief scout called Ian Story Moore. I can remember he played for Manchester United in England. Yeah, and he was a great bloke, uh, and he used to send me to match. He used, he used to say, "Go away, I like more or less. Go yeah. away, I like, and just report back to me," uh, which I did. After he left, uh, I moved on then to some other clubs, Leicester City. I had, had a while there at Leicester City, but I was mainly doing with them player and match assessment, which, which I really enjoyed doing. That actually more than the scouting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, looking at uh, looking at matches to see how individuals perform and the team shapes. Uh, that, that's always stayed with me. Moved on to some other clubs. Derby County, not County, Jimmy Sugar. I work for him personally. Oh yeah, he, he's he's very very well. He's one of the stands is named after him at at, uh, at Notts County, isn't it? Great, great fella, great fella. Probably my favourite Jimmy Sugar. But you see, with Jimmy, it wasn't what you wanted. You find it some scouts. It's, it's not what they want sometimes. It's what the manager's looking for. So I said to Jimmy, "What are you looking for?" He says, "I want him big and I want him quick." So that was simple. That to go and to go and see, you know, look yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. all he wanted. He didn't want like, skillful players, but different like that. So and I thought, well, at least he knows what he wants, and I go and look for that. But I often used to recommend players to him that a bit different, you know. And remember seeing a lad called Tony Naylor. Oh yeah, Tony Naylor, and he played, he played for Curtis Ashton at the time. Yeah, yeah. So they got this. Uh, Jimmy said he got this this lad at. Uh, at uh, Curzon Nationalist. He scored did, did he go to Preston? Uh, he went to Crew first of all. Crew, yeah, Crewe. yeah, yeah. I he remember went, him. He went to the Championship, yeah. He went to yeah. the Championship after that. And he, he, yeah, yeah. And I said, look, this guy scores goals for fun. He's like Shannon Pease to him. He just stands there and he put them over the net to say. He said, um, how big is he? I said, five foot six. And Jimmy says, that won't do. <laughs> <laughs> so he never followed him up and he went to Crew. But that, that's the way. You, you, sometimes I think you've just got to do what the manager or head coach wants, not what yeah. you want. And then again, I went on to other clubs and they used to have people watch junior football, schoolboy football, and I, I didn't like that. Out in all where there's no cover and you stop yeah. there, but maybe, you know, a waste of time. And then you get the parents uh, shouting, you know, uh, give it some well, you know, crop him and all that sort of stuff, you know. This is not for me, this sort of I'll see if we get back into uh, league football and non-league football, and which I did later on with Grimsby, Russell Slade. But after Grimsby, it wasn't quite the same. I was asked to go back again. But uh, this is talking about seven years ago. I thought, I've really had enough of this now. I'll go and uh, I'll pack it in. Made a bad decision, really, in uh, by a season to get. So when I've been on a When the Blues over the years, I've often 
paid attention to to you posting about players that that, that you've seen and liked. And, and I'll be honest, sometimes I've disagreed with you, and and sometimes yeah, yeah. I, and sometimes I haven't. But, but opinions, but it, it's all about opinions. It's all about opinions. But but I, but I've always really enjoyed re- reading some some of yeah. the stuff you've done. And you've told Latics managers about players that you think are good, aren't you? If you, yeah, if yeah. you in, in the time since you've stopped scouting professionally for professional clubs, how many Latics managers have taken you up on your advice? Well, David Dunn, actually. And there was a couple of lads I mentioned. There was Surridge, who came from um, Bournemouth. Surridge, and, and the centre-half is the one that I disagree with you on, that, that we got from we got a loan from Fulham. Cameron Bergeshever, he's, he's playing at a higher level and playing very well now. I don't always judge a player immediately. I yeah. think of a player, I usually think of a player, and what's it going to be like in two years? I look at players as prospects, and I thought, this lad in a couple of years' time, he's raw now, but in a couple of years' time, he's going, he's going to be great, I thought. He's going to be good anyway. He's going to be good. Yeah. Uh, another one you probably disagree was um, Dan Gardner. I was always half and half on Dan Gardner. Yeah, Dan, Gardner yeah. could, Dan Gardner could do some good things, but it was too intermittent, wasn't it? But yeah, he, he, he I know a, you liked him, yeah. It was a recommendation. It was a bit of a miss, I know. I know sometimes, yes, it was uh, passing, you know, <laughs> close my eyes at times, but, but he could do some great things in, in here, I thought. And, I was, you know, and, it, and he worked hard. Yeah, so I still do that. I still tend to look at players currently. Well. Now, here's, here's a question for you. Have um, have you recommended players to Mohammed? Uh, no. 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 I, I don't want to get into that, actually. No, because okay. you, don't, you don't know who the next manager's going to be. <laughs> That's the problem. You can recommend a player and, and, to, and then the manager is there, says, so OK, then he might not be here three months later. Not not a lot of point in that. If it was a manager like Joe Royal, who'd been for years, uh, you would do what. I always thought initially that Somebody you know, like Wellers would have stayed on, you see. Uh, I would have stayed on a bit longer, but uh, he didn't. But uh, I, I, I thought I thought it was game Richie Barnes, but he quite unfortunately got relegated that season, didn't we? Yeah, um, yeah. Shouldn't, shouldn't have got relegated that season, really. Shouldn't have happened. No, but there, 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 were, lots of, there were lots of reasons for that, for that weren't there, Alf? You know, so the we had some, had some decent players and shouldn't have gone down now. Better players than now. So here's a, here's a question. So what do you make? Obviously, we're going to come on to the game uh, that yeah. today shortly, but what, what, what do you make of the squad? That Keith Curl and um, and Mohammed have, have assembled this this season so far. Well, it's pretty poor, really. Um, on and off the field, but uh, a bit of sympathy for Keith Curl. Um, been dealt with a bit of a poor hand, I think, particularly with Embargo uh, and the injury situations. And it's team shape worries me. It's quite unbalanced, and that happened today. Or if you only going to let it happen again today, yeah. So a bit of sympathy for Keith. If he had the players, he could probably get a better shape. But unfortunately, the players brought in over the past few years, as you know, a few players from uh, continental players, they haven't fitted in at all. And, and to me, that was a policy that wasn't going to work. Yeah. If he'd brought in players, maybe it's the French first division or something, rather than the fifth, it might have worked. But not, not, not from those sort of levels. No, yeah. And that's where that's where it wrong. That's where it, the rot set in for me. Uh, when more, uh, I would say, uh, recommended those sort of players. Maybe through agents. I don't know. I've never seen them. But these days, to me, I've said this before. Agents rule these days. You know, yeah, no, scouting's gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> I imagine. I imagine in your in when you first started in the in the eighties, that agents would have would have got looking, would they? It's all dealt with managers. Managers yeah, dealt with yeah. Yeah. Brian Clough. As you know, around clubs, um, stories about him, you know. Uh, yeah. You know, he, he wouldn't be with agents. No, it was all, all personal with him. And, uh, yeah, I met Brian and had a good laugh with him. Yeah, he was a smashing, smashing bloke. Really, but just as you see, just as you, you think of him, he was. Yeah, no, I bet, I bet he was. I bet he'd, he'd have been good for a night out, I'm sure. Um, so in, in the current squad, which I think we all agree, 
is yeah. substandard. Are there any are there any standout players in there that you think that is a that is something to work with? Do you, do you think is there anything we've got to work with? Is there anything to grab a hold of and be positive about in your professional opinion? The keeper steady. Uh, look, Wyler, it, yeah. it's pretty steady. If you go around from the back, Diajani, a lot of people don't like him, but he, he, he does what he does. I see he's not passing from the back as much now, which is, which is great. But yeah. if, if you stick in the middle of central defence, he'll win nearly all the headers, uh, a good stopper. And now he's got the guy uh, next to him. It looks to be just the sort of player we need, really, at centre back. The two of them together are all right. Then you've got the young lads, Cueto, who's, he's come in and, and, and looked at all. He's yeah, he's, he's, I mean, I th- for me, he's, he's he's smashing, but he's not a recruit. They've just got lucky with him because he's come recruit, through. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, if you're looking for players, maybe we've signed it. I'll tell you one I did like, uh, Sam Hart. He's got some ability and he's got a great attitude. Uh, and he can play what centre-back, he could play centre-back or and left-back. And he's been badly missed, I think. Some of the players, Alan Walsh, been a disappointment, really. Not suited to play when he's been playing all season to me. He's not going to win any balls in the air or all the ball. Badly needed that big centre forward. I've mentioned this many times on WTB. That, that big, uh, like, uh, you know, the modern assault from Harrogate the other week. Something like that. Ben Bula's brought him before this season, wasn't he? So, yeah. um, I mean, he, he's... Uh, well, everybody loves him, not really. He can't do any wrong, no matter if he does what, wrong. What, what, do you, what do you think of him, though? Because because there are some people, there's a school of thought that that he, yes, he's got some magic touches and some, but, but some, sometimes he gets caught, you know, in the wrong he position. And... He does. But he's an, he's an entertainer and, and, and fans love that. I go back to 96 with this, with, with the Robert Johnson type of thing. Yeah. An entertainer. Yeah. But fan, fan, fans love that. And yeah. yeah, I think we're all just hoping he, he can stay. Uh, rather than go in January, we're not sure about that, what's going to happen. But no, I think he's an entertainer. He's great to watch. You'll go back to the match, Stephen match, and and, and uh, you'll see just what I'm talking about. Yeah. What do you, what, what do you make it? What do you make of Bowden and and uh, Batash, the two lone players? Personally, I want to sign either. I want to sign either. I don't think they're suited uh, to us. Funnily enough, they could be suited to a high division. This is because the, the footballers. You know what I mean? Yeah, the division's a different division. You know, you don't get the time on the ball, so they could possibly do better higher, maybe with other clubs as, as, as they go on. But I don't think it's really what we need. Um, I thought CC might have done what we needed, but weren't quite sure after a few games. But all in all, it's been a mix. But one or two decent signings, but in the main, in the main, no. Before we come on to talk about today's game, do you think we've got enough to stay up? We've got enough to stay up if if he can avoid. Uh, injuries in, in key positions and that showed early in the season that if you can avoid them keep these players fit we've got the January transfer window I don't know that's going to turn out if you can sign that centre forward that yeah. could make all the difference that yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. should have signed him that should have signed him before in the last window but mind you, we did sign a fellow didn't we Blythe didn't we who um, didn't didn't fit the bill really didn't fit the bill but I'd have gone for Somebody with a little bit more experience than that. But they are. I think it was a very cheap and cheerful option, wasn't it? At a time where we didn't really have any other options. Yeah. But even then, you wouldn't have bothered wasting the cash. No, well, Keith probably heard from fans then that we probably needed a big centre forward, so we're probably giving this lad a chance. But no, we, we do need that big centre forward. Maybe. Who, who, who have you seen so far then, and or in, in around League Two, maybe non-League that you've noticed? Well, that uh, as, as I mentioned, the lad at Arrogate. 
it. Uh, Luke Armstrong. Luke Armstrong. No, he's been in non league in the past. He, you know, yeah. he has. Yeah, yeah. So this this is what you can get if, if you were looking in non league. Uh, he was a couple of seasons in non league, and it, and I was impressed with him as centre forward player. You know, he good in the air, worked hard, never stopped all the game running, causing problems in defence. Uh, we had two big centre backs ourselves in that game, and uh, I thought that is just the one. But we wouldn't get him now because we have got no money. So Adam, did did you watch the game today? Just just to bring you in a bit, because obviously me, me and Alf are having a lovely chat here, like we're in the pub. But uh, I'm having a great time listening. It's like an audio book. No, it's good. <laughs> I knew Alf would be great. I was, I was looking forward to having, having him as a fan guest. But have you what? Did you watch the game today? I did, mate. Yeah. 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 What, what did you? Um, what, let's let, let's get into the meat of the game. Then we'll ask you to start, uh, and we'll come back to Alf. What did you make of it? I think. Today, we started a lot quicker than we have done all season, which is the reason why it's given us half a chance in the game. I've seen a lot of people saying it was a really good performance. For me, it was two very poor sides, if I'm honest. I don't think there was a lot of quality in the game. Individual bits of brilliance from the likes of Baham Bula and Kuto with some of his deliveries, I think was a, a big key in the game today. If they had maybe one or two plays with any quality, I think that scoreline wouldn't have been anything like that today. Clean sheets as well. I think I think that McGay has been a big key to that though. Is is the organizer that Piergiani isn't? Piergiani will throw his head onto stuff, but he's not going to be the one that will drag people into position and put them where they need to be. That McGay for me is 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 key in that. Is yeah, he is a big lad in the way that he plays. It's almost like he's like a Gerard figure from when he first came to us under Sheridan. That sort of marshalling centre half that we've massively missed. As long as we can keep him fit, because I think over the last couple of years, his injury record's not been great. If, if he stays in the side along with uh, Luke Weiler at the back, I think you've got your basis of what, what, what we've been asking for a while, a, a decent spine of a centre-half and a keeper that will drag you through this league. It's just further up the field where we need the recruits, a, a solid centre midfielder who's going to win the battles and get down and dirty and kick people. And as Al said, you need that big strapping centre forward who's not going to be bullied off the ball, who can bring others into play. Yeah, what, what do you think, Alf? Is it, do you agree with much of that? Have you got anything else? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Adam said it up very well. I, yeah, I thought we started well to well taking goals from um, Kelly Dunn. But after that, we seemed to drop deep, as happened in the past. And this case, Stevenage, um, I thought the momentum to attack, particularly on our right-hand side. Uh, I don't know if anybody noticed, but Dernley, who'd been having quite a poor game, really. He wasn't doing anything. I don't know if Adam will agree with that, up in the first half. He wasn't doing anything at all, holding the ball, lost the ball, while doing nothing. I noticed, in the start of the second half, he moved a little bit wider, and he started to work a lot harder and, and covering for stopped. Uh, that's was, his position, well, isn't it? That's, that's his normal it position. That's what it was. And he looked a lot better, actually worked harder than he did uh, up front. And he covered for stops. He was exposed. So stops is not a fullback. See, on the other side, you see what I say about unbalanced is that Quieto is more or less a, a defender fullback, where Stobbs is, is a, a right winger, an attacking right winger. And he likes to get forward, Stobbs, uh, run with the ball and cross it. That's his game, not defending. And I thought he struggled. To his credit, I think, Keith Cole did change it. I noticed he did change it. From then on, I think we're more or less in control. We still have the odd scare at the back, as, as usually do, a few mix-ups. And then we got the typical Bayern Bugler goal. That more or less settled it, I think. And I thought the man on the match was Whelan, because he covered... I'm glad you've said that. He covered, <laughs> he covered every way the glass in that game. He got himself ragged, and I thought he set a great example to the team, for non-stop. At one time, I said he would have been subbed into regular. 
but now he stays mm-hmm. all the time because he's a much needed player that side. You know, he, he, he plays it. She doesn't very spectacular through balls, but he keeps it simple, moves it about, and looks very, very hard. So I give him my management. What do you think, Alan? Yeah, I, I think it's Callum Whelan. I've been saying it to the, uh, the other lads that pushed the boundary quite a few times. That I, I like the look of him. Yeah, you know, he, he, he can play football. He, he knows where it needs to be and yeah. over the you know since he's joined us he has come straight out of under 23s which is you know nowhere near yeah. the, the sort of level that he needs to be at so yeah he has had quite a few bad games but with him you can see what he's capable of doing which is the big difference yeah. and he's had the learning experience of being at clubs like United who have always played the right way over the years through their academies for me you know I think if we got someone alongside him who was yeah. that real enforcer for me, that, that central midfield would be so solid. He, he has, I've looked at him, he has actually, his build was going to, I don't even notice that, he's got a bit of a stronger build this season than last season. Mm-hmm. I think that's helped him a lot. Absolutely. I think, I think if, if you remember Kieran Lee when we first got Kieran Lee, yes, yes, he, he was he was waif like. I remember to begin yeah, with, and he he, yeah, he was in and out of team at sort of right wing, if you like, and didn't look didn't look much cop. And then wind on a couple of years later, and he was probably one of the best. Well, he's played yeah. fullback for us, but he was probably one of the best players in the team by you know by quite a mile. And 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 I often think of Kieran Lee when I'm looking at some of these young lads from the likes of United. It's a bit like Durnley. I worry whether Durnley will ever be fit enough or have a long enough run. But if if he if he had a long enough run, he's quick. You know, he can finish. There's some, there's a player in there for me in Durnley somewhere. But but whether we can afford to, you know, wait for it to come out or not is uh, is is another argument. The issue is that you've probably got there though is the players that you you're bringing in. You have them hopes. You Durnleys. Your people who are playing up front. They need someone alongside them. They need that. Target man to play off, yeah, just not that of it. No, you're right. Yeah, I mean, Harlem will go, Harlem be a different player with somebody like Alan We've not seen that really, so we, we don't know. Yeah, he had to leave Alan Wolf out eventually because he wasn't really doing much, was he? To be, to be honest, so what, so, so what do you think? So, we talked about get Benny Kuto. What, what do you think, uh, of, of Harry Vaughan and Junior Luamba? Because obviously, you know, it's been great to see some of the youth boys come through the season, Alf, hasn't it? Yeah, it is a prospect. I mean, as a, as a scout, I would say, yeah, I would recommend that. Harry Vaughan. He's, he's got a great attitude. I like that in a lad. He's got the skill and determination. A couple of things I've always looked for that. Yeah, one way out the other, not so good for me. But if they got the both, they've got a great chance out of his mind. Being so raw and yeah. willing to go past people, and I think it gets knocked out of a lot of these professional footballers. And yeah. it's probably why a lot of them don't reach the potential of where they need to be. But, you know, yeah. just maintaining that raw approach, you beat a man, swing yeah. that ball in, don't be afraid of having one touch and whipping it. No. Rather than having one, two, three touch and then letting go, you know, it, 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 it's refreshing to see. And I think that's why fans are really getting on board with them, other than them being obviously very good footballers. Yeah, and it's only a little lad and he, he, he's as tough as they come, though, isn't he? He, he? he doesn't mind going against six footers, you know, and, and that's great to see that. And uh, mm. he's got... To me, everything going for him to go higher. He's probably a better player higher as well. In the um, in the main stand today, Alf, could yes. you see either of the Lemsagan brothers there today? Were they? They weren't there. Nobody. Neither, neither nobody, of them. There was nobody in the box that I knew. So no. no. Was there was there was there any um, audible protesting or singing? I think after we got the third goal, ironically, it came out Abdullah out. Are you for the protesting and the movement to remove the honour, or or do you think you should be given more time? The embargo worries me. That that the. The thing that worried me about the order was the embargo. That's yeah. just, think about them, that's, that ruined everything to me, that. And yeah. if it's put £5 million in the club, I would have thought it could have gone through that stage, you know, without any deeper embargo. And, and they were stuck with that, and, and that set us back. 
without that, we could have signed better players, I think. Whether it be lifted or not, I don't know. As regards to the protests, yeah, you, you could see them coming. Well, they had, had to come, really. But I'm just wondering now, if we start a sequence of wins, all that will die down and everyone will think I've got us great. I will quite happily say I want the owner to leave. I want new owners. I want to put the club yeah. for sale and leave. Where, where do you stand on it, Alf? If, if you continue putting the money in and stop... Well, is he, though? Because not even paying our rent on the ground. Yeah, there, there is that, yeah. yeah. There is that, but um, no... It, the thing more is that seems to have settled down a little bit now. I don't know if it's if it's true or not that he's not involved as much anymore. But that, that could make a difference. And uh, if fans maybe found out that Keeper signed his own players in January, uh, it might make a bit of difference and things would quiet down even more. One, one of the things we've touched upon recently is there are some fans who don't share the view that we should be protesting and we should be trying to remove the owner. And, that, and they're entitled to their opinion and that's absolutely fine. And, and in the main stand where where you're seated, I think you know we've we've talked about this on the podcast previously. There's been sort of audible groans and people telling the protesters to stop from that sort of stand. And no, uh, I'm not, I'm not one of the reasons really that pushed the boundary myself mm. and the foundation as they are would cite for needing new ownership is we talked about it last week the amount of positions off field positions that are unfilled. Chief exec, head groundsman. Yeah. You know, it, there's an obvious problem with the way that the company is run. Forget about whether we're bottom of the league top of the league it doesn't matter the, the, the way that the, the company is run is really bad and we're in rent arrears we're under embargo P- people haven't always got paid on time you know it's just badly run and those are the reasons really that many of us think that it, it's time for a change yeah but let, let's say for example hypothetically if he said I'm going to bed embargo off I'll put a million pound in and Keith and sign a week once. How would you feel then? For me, he'd have to to do a few things. He'd have to say, I'm removing my brother from sporting director job. He has no say whatsoever over, and you just remove him, right? He's nothing to do with that anymore. For me, he's a malign influence. I'll remove him. I'm going to remove the embargo. So I'm going to pay off the 490 grand debt to the AFL. And I'm going to pump in a million pound into the January transfer window. Yeah. I'm going to let Keith sign it. I'm going to employ a really good chief executive and a lot of off-field staff. Yeah. And I'm then going to I'm going to talk about trying to purchase the land, to unify the land to, to the club. I might start to pay attention, but I don't for one moment expect don't those things it. to happen. No, no, no. <laughs> so he's probably had more money in this year mm. through COVID via the EFL loans, the business continuity loans, the business interruption insurance, if obviously they've got that. There's plenty of money that is readily available for them this year that hasn't been available before so surely oh, that's on top of your season tickets as well so they've probably met, had more money in their account this year than they've probably ever had mm-hmm. if you if, you know if you think of it like that he has said hasn't he he would sell it if, if the right bid come in he, he has but 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 the right bid in his head is probably well in yeah, excess of the back. market value of the asset and and that's yeah. probably and, that, and that's the that's the thing that needs to be broken down so if he, for, for sake of argument, has said he's put five million quid in, if the club is for sale, he, he just he's going to have to have a reasonable valuation for it because he's never ever going to recover that money again. He's no, only not. ever going to lose more. So it, it yeah. seems it seems a bit of a fruitless exercise. It depends if we got the if got the bidders in. I, I don't know. I don't know how many bidders we got in. If any, well, we, 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 we know that we know that there are people interested because uh, mm. I mean, you know, 
Steve gave us an update last week, Adam. There's probably not much more you can say, but um, you know, you, you you guys are talking to people that have shown an interest in the background, and you know, hope, hopefully at some stage in the not too distant future, we, we may have part. We may have the potential for Abdallah and his legal team to be talking to somebody who might be interested in purchasing the asset from them. Hopefully, yeah, we've um, we have been speaking to a few. The, the issue that we're having at the minute is you've got an owner who is saying. He wants to sell the club and get something back from that. The issue is the club's running as insolvent. Realistically, whoever buys it is going to have to buy it for a minimal fee. As I've said before, you've got plenty of businessmen out there who we've spoken to before. One of them who was point blank refused to go over the initial 1.5 and said the club's not worth anything more. I am not putting more money into that when I'm wanting to put more money into the invest, you know, infrastructure, the actual buying of land to, to do something with the club. The, these people are clever businessmen. They don't want to be taken for a ride over a club which hasn't got any assets and is technically worthless, but someone wants three, four million quid for it. It's not going to happen. We're, we're trying to get people to come out and say, you know, I am interested. However, they have the issue there of if someone puts their interest forward and obviously if you've been in business, you'll know that that's where things start getting a bit stupid with money-wise. You know, if people really want it, then you've got a potential of a bidding war. Do you want a bidding war for an insolvent football club? It's one of those things, isn't it? It's it's difficult, but we are still speaking. There is some positive talks, and we're hoping that we can be getting in touch with Adam Morley in the next couple of weeks to put these people in touch with him to have proper conversations and sensible offers on the table. Well, it's good. I mean, it's good to hear. We're hopefully, you know, one of these things can can progress, and, and we can try and find some resolution to it. Because, I, you know, for me, the blitz thing is equally as problematic as Abdallah. We need to somehow get and try and get these two things aligned at some stage to give us some potential opportunity. To, to have some hope you know just to touch upon football focus episode this morning it just hit the right notes it's, we're not expecting to be in the Premier League again we just want to have some hope do we want to quickly talk about the attendance today how many fans do you think were there Alf you were there I heard it, yeah. 3,479, is it? Something like that. Something like that. Do you reckon that was right? Who knows these days? <laughs> I counted a Steelers fan, and I think I counted about 25. Not the uh, 180 of the set. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know how they work, they work it out these days. I think I think we talked about it the other week. I think they um, they include all season tickets and all comps uh, in the number, whether they've turned up or not, which is a bit naughty. But yeah, we're probably less said about that the better. I eh, Adam, we'll just move on. In terms of other PTB news, so there's been a lot of people asking in the last week, where's the protests? When's my next protest? Why aren't we having protests? Steve explained last week, and you've just done eloquently now. You've been directing your attention elsewhere. But should we expect to hear more from PTB in the next few weeks? Absolutely. Obviously, the intention isn't to just cut off all protest. However, obviously, as I've said earlier on on social media, you've got to direct it in the right ways. And doing a protest outside the ground every week, does that become a bit of a boring thing where, you know, people don't really see it as being effective? You, you want to keep changing what you're doing. We had a couple of things lined up which haven't been able to happen. Just a couple of, of issues with the, the business that we wanted to do something with. Should have been for the Harrogate game, then moved today. But again, the same issues occurred so 
we are we are looking at doing things. However, we want to try and vary it. We don't want the same things, which is why we looked at for the protest, getting the uh, air ad yeah. to try and bring in different interest into what's going on. It can't be the same. So whilst we're looking at different ways, obviously, if anyone's got any ideas or anything of how they think it should go, emails are always open, you know, messages on social media, you know, whichever way you want to go about it. It's about every single supporter. It's not just about the four lads at Buster Boundary or the people at the foundation or the podcast. It's about everybody. If anyone has any ideas, come forward. We'll have a chat. There's no issue there at all. But obviously at the same time, whilst we're trying to do things behind the scenes to try and bring new ideas forward, supporters themselves have got to continue the process in whichever way they seem necessary whilst we're doing other things. It's not always going to be the case where we can keep going and going and going. Things have got to be different and it's got to be done in a professional manner, which is the way we want to try and keep it. Fair enough. We'll look forward to hearing more news and, and seeing more events and stunts over, over the coming weeks. But It, it, it won't it, be for a lack of trying anyway. I think the protest maybe has had some effects on performances because um, results have improved really and maybe that's got something to do with it it serves the manager uh, and the players to be stronger and better let's all just leave on on the on a positive note of a fabulous 3-0 victory tonight yeah. go, and, go and have a drink and enjoy that It's but it's been a pleasure seeing you both thanks very much right. thank you have Cheers. a good evening Okay, so I would like to welcome to this episode of the Boundary Park Alert System, Andy Roberts. Hello, Andy. Hi, Andy. Nice to meet you. Uh, I'll explain who you are to everybody if I get this right. You are the chairman of Northampton Town Football Club Supporters Trust. That's correct, yes. Excellent. And uh, you've been in situ in that role for three years, I believe. Is that about right? Yeah, just over three years now, Andy, yeah. Well, I was just briefly explaining before we hit record, which I'll repeat now, is the reason that we've invited Northampton Town on to talk to us is when we were putting a list of clubs together we wanted to talk to, Northampton wasn't originally on that list, but we talked to many, many supporters' trusts over the course of the last year. And a good half a dozen of them have told us to speak to Northampton. And we were somewhat puzzled as to why. And then we did a bit of research and found that actually we're talking to the oldest supporters trust in the football league, Northampton Town, were the very first original supporters trust, and you were formed in 1992. Is that right, Andy? That's right. Yeah, it's our 30th birthday next January. Amazing. And so uh, it's, it's quite a journey. I've done a bit of reading. So maybe I'll get you to explain to us. In 1992 and those subsequent years, you were finding yourselves, we, we just for comparative purposes, we were in the Premier League at that point, <laughs> believe yeah. it or not. But in, in 1992, I remember. <laughs> you guys had found yourself in some quite financial difficulties with an owner of yours, some millions of pounds in debt yeah. in 1992. And your supporter trust was formed really to try to help the club out of that financial mire. Was is, is that right? That's right, Andy. Yeah, I mean, going back to April of the year before 1991, the club was bought by a, a Coventry market trader called Michael McRitchie, who came in with a great fanfare saying, I'm going to take this club forward. I've got this, I've got that. Everyone bought into it. But within a very short space of time, it became clear that the new owner was completely over his head in terms of what he'd taken on. He just didn't have the, the money or the acumen really to take the club forward. And the club was very quickly found itself in dire financial straits to the point that players 
great stories of players being paid in coins you know when they when they rolled up to the to to a cash point in the players bar and the and the match program being printed i think in a game against burnley on a piece of paper so it became quite clear quite quickly that things were badly wrong but of course as always happens in those situations and still to this day the owners became very defensive we didn't get much information but we were in free fall so as a result of that on the 2nd of january 1992 a public meeting was held in northampton which i think 600 fans attended which was a big turnout really considering it was just a day into the day or so into the new year a lot of information came out and on the back of that meeting the supporters trust was was founded basically with a mission to cut the owner off at the pass and try and get the football club back on an even keel. Was there an objective in those days to make Northampton Town fan-owned? No, I don't think so. The, the, the driver behind the Supporters Trust was the late Brian Lomax, who, who many football fans might remember, obviously formed the first Supporters Trust at Northampton. And then a few years later, with the advent of the Labour government and the and an increased focus on on football supporters, basically. He went on to form Supporters Direct, which in turn helped many football clubs and other sports clubs throughout the country form trusts. So Brian Lomax was really the the main man, the, the, the man behind the movement, really. He actually based his Supporters Trust on the Rugby Mayday Trust, which was a housing association organization which he was involved with, but he felt the principles and the operations of that trust would suit football. And that's why Northampton Town became the first supporters trust with a view of raising money, buying shares and increasing supporter influence in in the club. Amazing. So we've spoken to the Football Supporters Association on a previous episode, who, of course, uh, Supporters Direct were a forerunner to. So all these pieces of the jigsaw come together now. This is why all the other trusts we've spoken to have centres your way because all re- all roads lead to Northampton, it would appear. So Brian Lomax, we yeah. all owe a debt of gratitude to in some in some respects. That's, that's, that's brilliant to sort of put those pieces together. So in 1992, you, you form your trust with an objective really just to try and keep the club afloat and uh, in the Football yeah. League and, and operating. I did a bit of research. I think around the same time, Aldershot had gone out of business, hadn't they, and, and dropped down out of the football <laughs> league. And you, and you, and you, yeah. you there was there's something in your history that says you were trying to avoid that in effect around the same time. Yeah, you trying to keep yourself in the yeah. football league. Aldershot sadly went went out, and it was a while, obviously, before they came back under an, under a new name. One memory of that 1991-92 season was actually when Northampton Town played Aldershot at at Northampton. Michael McRitchie, the Northampton chairman and the Aldershot chairman both led the teams out onto the field in a in a show of solidarity to the tune of always look on the bright side of life. Christ. Which um <laughs> which yeah you can look back on it now and, and chuckle, but at the time it didn't seem so funny. No, 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 no. Yeah. It's it's uh it's incredible it's um, it's amazing how crass some of these owners can be with their behavior over <laughs> over time, isn't it? And and sort of yeah, have no yeah. no understanding of how that how their behaviours might be met. So so what happened then in in that time? Did did you manage to uh, remove your owner or or get a, a new set of owners? In how, what 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 did you do yeah. to try and affect change? I mean, the, the trust was formed in the January, and and in the scheme of things, things went moved very very quickly indeed. The, the bottom line was that the owner, not necessarily 
a rogue, I would say, having reflected on this, just someone who was a little bit idealistic and too ambitious and, and clearly didn't have the resources to take on the football club at that time. But there was no money. Bucket collections outside the, cra- the ground, which the trust organised, we, we wanted supporters to give money to the trust. The chairman came out, sent the trust bucket collectors away, saying you should be giving money to the club. But we didn't want to give money to the club because it would go straight to the owner. And then, of course, we didn't know where that money was going to go from. A similar story to, in many ways, where... bring it up to speed which we'll come on to later as to where we are and now in a certain in a certain way but the, the the football club struggled and actually the trust it was a difficult decision because they persuaded one of the club's biggest fans a gentleman called Tim Vernon who was owner of a company that printed the club program to actually put a winding up order against the club to force the hand of the the chairman. It was a, a bit of a risky strategy because we didn't know where that would, would end up. But to cut a, a long story short, the owner just didn't have the wherewithal to come up with a different plan for the club. It was going nowhere. He had no money. And in the end, he was forced to put the club into administration. Um, I think Northampton were probably the first club, I think, to actually go into administration when there were no points penalties, just transfer embargo further down the line in, in terms of what you could do. So the club went into administration. The administrator came in April morning and quite ruthlessly sat the whole management of the club and half of the playing staff um, to get the club back on a sort of an even keel, so to speak. So we saw out the rest of the season with the youth team, managed to stay in the in the fourth tier. But the chairman, Michael McRitchie, there was no way the administrator was going to broker him being back involved in the club. So he went and a new board of directors, which had previously been sacked by Michael McRitchie, was was reinstated to take the club on. And the administrator, interestingly, actually became the chairman of the football club, a guy called Barry Ward. So in a bizarre way, he was taking, well, not taking money out of the club, but he was, whereas chairman normally of football clubs are expected to put money in to save a club or to further a club. He wasn't taking money out, but he was he was he was driving a very hard bargain in terms of keeping the club afloat, and and luckily we managed to survive. Amazing. So actually, the the, the course of really trying uh, having having a creditor to yeah. uh, try and get that money back was was the course that yes. really really moved the goalpost for you. Okay, that, that, I mean that yeah. is a really interesting interesting maneuver. And, and yeah, you're right. It could it could have backfired, couldn't it? <laughs> but it but it was it could it have was, done. It, it, was, it could have done. But, but to be fair, the administrator then remained as chairman. Barry Ward remained as chairman for the next few years with the previous board of directors. Wasn't a lot of money coming in, and we we operated under a transfer embargo for a lot of that time. But a shrewd managerial appointment in bringing Ian Atkins to the club enabled us to actually make progress in those next years to the extent we finished up at Wembley in 1997 and 1998 in the playoff finals. You know, a far cry from where we had been just a few years before. That's right, yeah. And, um, and then the following season, you'd have made it to the third tier where you would have met us, having we, we'd fallen two relegations within a few years to the third tier. And, and that's where... We, we did we did play Oldham. Yeah, that's right, yeah. in the third tier, 1997-98. I think it yeah. was a... 
I think we won at Boundary Park from recall. And I, you, you probably I did. That, that was that, that was the year that we, we'd just come back. We'd just come down to the third tier from the second the year before. So you, the year you'd gone up, we'd, we'd met. We were on very different paths by that point and really haven't haven't changed a great deal since. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. But yeah, so so, you, so I did read. You actually finished, you also during this time, you finished bottom of the Football League one year, didn't you? And you didn't get relegated by the pure <laughs> fluke of the team that was coming up, didn't have a ground that was ready yeah, for football. Absolutely. Year. <laughs> I mean... We've, we've managed to remain a football league club since 1921, but I, I personally think we've been very fortunate on, on occasion, and not least in 1994, when, yeah, the previous year we, we, we had to win at Shrewsbury on the last game of the season, effectively, to stay up, and we did that. And then in 1994, they said, oh, we won't, we'll never be in this position again, but actually we finished bottom of the football league that year. But it's because Kidderminster Harriers, who, who had finished top of the then conference, or whatever it was called, their ground wasn't up to standard for football league, but they weren't allowed in and we were reprieved. But of course, the great irony there was, if you remember the good old county ground at Northampton, I do, you know, yeah. I'm sure the Kidderminster ground was in a better condition than, than the county ground. But the fact that we were in the football league was key, really. Well, we were it, very, very lucky it, to it, stay it, in. It, it brings me on to a perfect point because I was going to ask you because really, as you talked about Ian Atkins becoming your manager and then a sort of a, a period of, of success, relative success yes. followed. You also did did this coincide with your move to Sixfields? Was this around the same sort of time? Yes, it was. Yeah, we moved to Sixfields in October '94. Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. So and that yeah and and Ian Atkins came in January '95. So the two were pretty much similar. And both were catalysts, really, to the club enjoying some better times, certainly in the in the years to come. So, so I guess I guess just to sort of try and follow the chronology a bit here. So, your trust has helped remove an owner, bring in a new set of owners, in effect, by the course of action you've taken. That's precipitated uh, a good managerial appointment, and you've gone on to a period yeah. of success. So your trust takes credit for affecting change for your football club around that time. But at no stage did you did you have any share in the club? You didn't own any of the club at any of this point. No, to, to be honest, I'm not absolutely sure. But no, the, the, the supporters trust when it was formed, was formed with a view to raise money and increase our shareholding influence in the club to try and ensure that something like we'd experienced would never sort of happen again. So we did at one point have a, a significant shareholding in the club. I'm not sure what the percentage was and that's been seriously diluted in, in the years to come. At this moment, we still have about a Three to four percent shareholding in the club. Right, so it's a similar amount to the one that the, the one that we yep. currently enjoy through our yes. own supporters trust. You would have had a greater share, presumably, at some stage through fundraising that you did, and like you said, that's yep. been share issues yep. from owners have watered that down, presumably, over time. Yes. Okay. Yep. So, so then the six field move was that something that that your trust was involved in? Was that something that your trust wanted, or, or who were the players behind the move away from the county grounds to six field? Yeah. Um, no, it wasn't something that the trust moved on. The plan to move Northampton from the county ground was a long-running saga spanning many decades and, and usually fell on the sword of the will of the local authority yeah. to lend a helping hand because the football club didn't have any assets or resource really to, to affect it itself. Um, but in 1994, after about five years of negotiation, the local authority bought Sixfields, um, developed Sixfields as a community stadium, which the football club could play in alongside an athletics track behind for, for the athletes. And obviously with a view to using the stadium 24-7 on a community basis. 
So that was the, the, the driver behind Sixfields, really, the, the community aspect to it. And, and uh, presumably the county ground was never owned by Northampton Town Football Club. It was No, it was, a, it was owned by the, the Cricket Club cricket, um, yeah. as part of a, a trust arrangement with whereby either the football club and, another, and a bowls club used the ground but the cricket club owned it and called yeah. the shots, basically. Yeah, yeah. So Northampton Town has never, ever been in a position where it's owned its own ground. Its own land. And so today the sixth field is owned by, is it still owned by the council? Still owned by the council, but with yeah. a long leasehold to the football club. Yeah, okay. And then, and so, and so when it comes to, well, we're going to move forward to this, because obviously the, the, the thing that most of us will remember sure. is, is your ground redevelopments in recent times and the, the <laughs> stories, we'll, we'll come to yes. that, but... So, so I guess for, for then for a period, presumably, your trust, I mean, here's, here's a question for you. So you said 600 people first first joined, first went to that yeah. meeting back in 92, which is a significant number. What was membership of the trust like? Was it heavy? Was, and how many people were, were involved in the trust? Has there always been a good number? or It's always been a goodish number, really, you know, compared to trust memberships across the country. Obviously, when it was initially formed, you know, there, there, there was a good take-up. A lot, a lot of people took out life membership of the trust because they felt that's what they wanted to do and they wanted to safeguard the club or help safeguard the club. As you will find, you know, with your own trust or other supporter organisations, which are membership organisations, you tend to do better when things are not so good. You know, when a club's in crisis, everyone wants to become a member of the supporters trust. But when things are going well or, you know, there's there's no debt collectors at the door and what have you, as is the case at Northampton at the moment, because bills are being paid, etc. Trust membership isn't so high. Our membership at the moment is about 760, and it used to be nearing 1,000. It's really interesting to hear you say that. Late Orient said the same to us, that when, when they were in real peril and got relegated out of the Football League, they had their membership was in, in four figures. And more recent times, now, now they're more stable, it's back in the hundreds. We're at our lowest ebb in, in 50 years in real dire straits with land and club ownership. And we, until recently, only had 200 members of our trust. That s- says a lot about the, the ground that our trust probably needs to make up over uh, over the, ne- the, the coming months, really. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to hear. So, so you, you presumably then go through in the late 90s and early 2000s, a, a period of relative success. You know, you, you yes. opened down from the third and the fourth tier, I recall, yeah. but you, you, were, you were doing relatively yeah. well. Presumably, your, your trust was largely, you know, dormant's the wrong word, but it didn't have a lot of aggressive work to do. Presumably, it, it was it was a, a stable, absolutely. Asset, that, that's the thing. When things stabilise and things are going pretty well, then the, the trust can revert to what I call a sort of a more traditional supporters club um, in terms of its function, i.e., raising money, supporting functions, etc., um, etc. Et and they don't have to worry about the the hard yakker, if you like, of yeah. asking awkward questions and and doing a lot of dry background research work into where things they think might be going wrong or could go wrong. And there's a bit of complacency sets in as well, I think. And that we were certainly guilty of that when things again became clear were going very wrong with this land deal and and the missing millions. And um... let's swiftly move on to that then. So so the, this brings us. Uh, not quite up to the present day, but but not far. It, it was only three or four years ago, wasn't it? When uh, so yeah. I, may, maybe I'll get you to to explain it instead of me trying to trying to guess with my research. Is at what stage and under what ownership did things start to become problematic? I know you had there was talk about foreign investment from China. I remember seeing that in the news. Yeah. And you had you had uh, you had a particular owner 
uh, where some money had gone missing, there was a grant from your local council to redevelop the sixth field. So why don't you tell us? You'll be better than me. The, the, the sort of recent history, and, and, and I'll try and make it as concise as possible with a sort of a timeline, really. As I say, we had a, a period of stability under a, an owner called David Cardoza, who was a former city broker or worked in the city and his father Tony Cardoza who was slightly more dubious but had a bit of money and the two of them ran the ran the club but without any apparent problems for for many years and we as you say we yo-yoed between tier three and tier four but you know by and large everything was okay we were a functioning football club then in 2013 David Cardoza with the help of the a local conservative politician who was the, who became leader of the local borough council pushed for a, a land development around Sixfield Stadium which would benefit the club in terms of redeveloping what is known as RE stand which was a pretty basic one-dimensional stand but would increase it in terms of seats conferencing facilities boxes possibly a hotel all this sort of stuff you know which would enable the football club to become more progressive which everyone felt we needed because we've never had that really and um, it's always held us back but the the payoff was the development of a large area of land around Sixfield Stadium. So to cut a very long story short this was all agreed by the council and the then chairman David Cardoza and it was going to cost about £12 million to develop this, you know, which raised a few eyebrows at the time. It's a significant sum of money isn't it? £12 million to develop a stand. Absolutely. But the council, they said they'd done their due diligence, they'd done their background checks, and they were happy with the arrangement. They felt it was good for the town, the club would benefit. And so everything was agreed, and money started being paid over in segments to the football club, who had appointed another company called First Land Limited to actually do the development work around the stadium. And a myriad of companies suddenly sprung up, all funneling into this development project. And money was handed over and handed over over and the stand came down and then was partially rebuilt and then the building stalled and then it went on again a bit and then it stalled again and there was obviously something quite wrong but all this time just out of interest Andy so so just to go back the 12 million pounds it was costing who was funding that was that all taxpayers money yes this was public money although it wasn't directly from Northampton Borough Council it was from a I can't remember the exact name of the fund, but it was a European fund where the criteria was met for this sort of money to be used on this sort of project. So it was a still a loan. It was still it was still public money, which Northampton Borough Council in the end would be accountable for, although it was loaned to the council, who then loaned it to the football club. But as I say, right. the money was handed over in tranches. Development, there was nothing going on. And then it became quite clear that something was seriously wrong. And then the balloon went up probably in um, the middle of 2015. Very little information coming out, all cloaked in commercial confidentiality. But the rest, as they say, is history. More than £10 million or around £10 million was handed over. No work was done on the stand effectively. And the money disappeared into the ether through a, a myriad trail of companies which is still the subject of an ongoing police and CPS investigation. So it's so so even now, some six years later, this is still not concluded. Unbelievable. No, is, no, is, that's is, right. is, is the stand complete? I have been to the Sixfield Stadium uh, once, and and the stand was 
on in progress for being built. And it, it to be honest, it looks very similar to a, a new stand that we had built at our ground as well, in terms of the sort of the, the glass facade overlooking the overlooking stand. The seats were in, but but it was almost like an empty shell behind it when I saw. So is it is it completed yet or not? No, it isn't. It's still essentially a framework. They have got seats, they restored the seats that they initially took out. So the capacity of the stadium is unaffected. But actually, if you sit there, you know, there's no back to the stand or anything. It's just a structure and it's an embarrassment, basically. Yeah, no, I feel the embarrassment. Yeah, I'm embarrassed about my club consistently, son, and I feel for you in, in that regard. Mm. Yeah. So uh, presumably, therefore, this is not a complete investigation. There's certain limits on what you can say. But you've got a, a presumably somebody's had to, to begin a criminal investigation here somewhere, or, or there's been some investigation that's begun. And how how did that come about? Was that who was that instigated by? I guess is the question. Well, I think the the, the borough council obviously suddenly realised that there was there was something desperately wrong. Their their reputation was in tatters, you know, around the town. The leader of the council's name was was Murd, but you know, there's no evidence or suggestion as to how much he was implicated but the police moved in pretty quickly and took stuff away from the club and what have you but as I say you know it's still under investigation we're expecting it to be concluded quite quickly but as a result of that the chairman David Cardoza was interviewed by the police. He's had restrictions put on him in terms of how widely he and his family can travel. So they're still waiting the outcome and to see if any charges are brought either against them or the developers who came in or or possibly even misfeasance um, cases against some of the council members and officers at the time. Unbelievable. So it could even be wider yeah. reaching than, than you, get, you give it credence for. So and was yeah. there... So I do recall, and I did a bit of pre-reading beforehand, there was also some potentially some foreign investment, right? Was this involved in the same thing or is this is unconnected? That's, that's a little bit later down the line, okay. um, Andy. When David Cardoza moved from the football club, there was talk about an Indian consortium coming in. Okay. But I think checks on them pretty quickly discovered that it wouldn't be a good idea for them to come in. So that all, that all went and... Um, as I say, David Cardoza eventually sold the club for a pound to David Bauer, uh, a Dubai-based lawyer, and Kelvin Thomas, who's based in Florida, who are our current owners, owner and chairman, respectively. During this, what would have been uh, quite an upsetting time for you, your supporters, what, what were the trust doing to try to affect change in the background? What, what could you do? Well, it's an interesting question, Andy, and this is a, a topical point, which I'm sure has been touched on in some of your previous conversations. When the trust was set up in Northampton, and the mission of the trust was to have representatives on the board of directors of the football club, and we had two, two trust officials on the board of Northampton Town FC for some time, then it came down to one representative. And this arrangement continued up until the departure of David Cardoza, effectively. Okay. But critics of the trust will say, and you know, with some, you know, it's a fair point that you had a representative on the board of directors, and still you couldn't raise the alarm quicker that, you know, there was something seriously wrong and, and eventually 10 million pounds disappearing into thin air. And and that's a fair comment. All I would say on that is, you know, you can have a representative on a board of directors, but the chairman and other directors, if they want to, can still sideline trust representatives or fan representatives, hold their own meetings, hold their own conversations. 
And it can often be a very difficult relationship and, and sometimes a lot of the time not a meaningful relationship either. And while I would like to see fans great, more greatly represented in their football clubs, I'm not entirely convinced that the, the token appointment of a fan onto a board of directors is always a good thing. It has to be a meaningful appointment, probably driven by government reform, I would think, because as we've seen, you can have someone sitting on the board of directors and they can still do what they like and hide stuff and, and what have you. And how how effective is that? And, 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 you know, we've taken a bit of a reputational hit on the back of that. It's an interesting one. I think if you're going to have someone on a board, there's got to be a meaningful relationship. Otherwise, it's just a token exercise and a futile one. Well, I've got, we have every sympathy with that. So obviously, as we touched upon before we hit record, we, we've had a representative on our club board since our trust was formed in around 2003 for that, that sort of time. And we've even had, there's been three people, uh, only three people during the course of that time that have served on our club's board that have been trust representatives. And we've interviewed two of them on, on the podcast today. One of them was a very controversial figure, but he said pretty much what you've just said, which is, you know, to, to try and give him some cut him some slack is you know owners can do what they want and I can only only see so much I guess the challenge is for us and I don't know how your guys have done in the past maybe it's worth asking you is once you get into that position you've got to be careful as the as the fans rep on the board not to sound like you are defending or working for the club you've got to somehow try and balance that I'm here as your representative as the supporters so I'm going to tell you the supporters what I can tell you and I think ours have failed somewhat because it's a difficult thing to do is they end up sounding like the club's mouthpiece and they end up sounding like they're lecturing supporters or dictating to supporters how they should think or behave and I think that really is, is, is 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 the challenge it's very tricky, isn't it? It, it, it? Entirely what you say there, you know, in a, in a way, it's a bit of a no-win situation. You know, we've we've experienced that in 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 the past. Football fans are are very quick to <laughs> point out things like this as well. I mean, yes, you you need to be on there representing the supporters, but even during the Brian Lomax days, and I, I spoke to Brian at the time, and. He said the antagonism towards the trust from the then board of directors, even the businessman on the board, was was very great. And he had to fight several battles to make friends and influence people, really. And I don't think that's changed. I think most owners see supporters as, well, a revenue stream, a bit of a cash cow. They'll pay money at the gate. They'll buy some food and drink and they'll take out some hospitality. But have them running the club? Oh, heaven forbid. You know, why would we want that? They couldn't possibly do it anyway, which is a nonsense, you know, but that's always been there. That hasn't changed from day one, I don't think. And I don't think it'll ever change unless, as I say, the government have the bottle really to really pick football up and do it in a very different way. Well, we, we're all hoping that Tracy Crouch MP's review is going is to get some teeth. I've seen the, we, we've all read the initial report, which which is encouraging, but is is only a start. And we're going to need to see more. Yeah. I mean, we've had Exeter, Exeter City on a previous podcast episode and, and my God, what a great job those guys do down there. They they talked about oh, you absolutely. as well. An amazing job down there with, with real long-term yeah. strategic decisions that they've made that benefit the club and will benefit the club for years to come. And so it, it's tacit proof that, that supporters can be involved in effective running football clubs. It's just a matter of, of how you balance those yes. two things, isn't it? 
So I guess, um, yeah. What, how, what's your relationship like? What's the trust relationship like with your current owners then? So the two gentlemen that, that bought it from the Mr. Cardoza. Not very good at present, if truth be told. When they first came in, we had a series of meetings. We've never seen David Bauer only only on a Zoom call, really. He comes to the ground maybe once or twice a year, so he's very much a distant owner. Kelvin Thomas is the chairman and the, and the front man, really. So we had a few meetings with him. He made it quite clear from the very outset that if the council had ex- insisted on supporters being on the board of the football club, it would have been a deal breaker because he just didn't he didn't think it was the way forward and it wouldn't fit into the model of the way they wanted to run things. So that wasn't a great start, really. <laughs> and then things were OK. And then they wanted the trust's backing for this land deal they are currently seeking with the with the local authority, we dug our heels in really and said we weren't prepared just to say yes to everything. We needed more detail, which they weren't prepared to give. So that sort of soured relations for a long time, really, a good 18 months. If you guys still own a share, though, the, the, there's certain legal... Um... Oh, yeah, as a shareholder, you know, yeah. absolutely. But they, they don't pay much attention to that, really. And, and they treat, I think, other shareholders with great deal of disrespect as well, from what I understand. But September last year, there was a bit of a rapprochement. We had a, a meeting and we decided to back their deal on the on the basis that there'd be full scrutiny going forward and that further detail would be looked at as and when it appeared. And, you know, we move forward on that basis. So I, ironically, I'm not sure it was earlier this year, the football club updated us on their position with the now West Northamptonshire Council in terms of the land deal, but and said, oh, please ask us any questions, you know, that you might have. So we compiled a list of 25 questions for the club, which we wanted written answers to so that they were on the record and fully understood, which the club weren't prepared to give. And on that basis, you know, we've had to withdraw our support for the deal. We've taken a lot of flack from fans who who can't understand why we wanted written answers as opposed to verbal answers in a Zoom call, which we didn't feel was the right forum for for that sort of... um, Right. Yeah, 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 that's it. And so, yeah, at the moment, there's a great distance between us again, and we're not supporting the land deal unless they can give us a bit more information, which we've requested, as you say, as a shareholder, as much as as a supporters trust, but they're not prepared to give. So, yeah, the standoff continues and watch this space. Well, we find ourselves in a very similar position. We're both in the fourth division. No, we neither is on our land. We've got strained relationships with our owners. Uh, yep. <laughs> there's a lot of parallels to be drawn. Yes. Which is a real shame. And, and we're not the only clubs. We, we realise that there are more in the football league that are, that are experiencing what we're experiencing. A quite good question to ask you would be, the, the two gentlemen that own you, are they Northamptonshire born and bred? Do they have a connection to the football club? Are they Northampton Town supporters? What are their motives? Oh, no. The first part, no. Neither have any Northamptonshire connections. Both are Oxford United fans. As I say, one lives in Dubai and the other's main home is in is in Florida. They arrived at the club basically because our then manager, Chris Wilder, who obviously went on to yeah. great, great things team. with Sheffield United for a year or so. Funnily enough, he was the manager at the club and gave a very impassioned speech when the wheels were coming off and reached out actually to Kelvin Thomas, who'd been his former chairman at Oxford United, I see. and said, look, can you come in here and do something at this football club? Otherwise, we're going to go down down the spout once again. So that's how Kelvin Thomas got introduced to the to the club. Yeah, as I say, and then Wilder obviously went on on a fantastic run. We won the, the fourth tier um, by 13 points, went into League One briefly, as per usual. And... <laughs> 
Wilder went on to much better things and, and fair play to him. You know, he, he deserved that for, for what he did at our club and, and, and others, really. Kelvin Thomas obviously stayed, but we're certain that he wouldn't be at Northampton if it was not for the prospect of making quite a bit of money from this land deal that he's seeking with the Counts. Yeah, and, and that's ultimately where I was leading you is is on hoping you would you would give me that answer is there's always an ulterior motive, isn't there? Yeah. When there isn't a local consortium or local business people or local people involved in a football club the size of Northampton or Oldham, there has to be questions over what their motives are and and, mm-hmm. and, and you get to that point. Yeah, it's, it's a, another sort of chastening experience and story to, to listen to. I, I guess that there's a couple of questions that I wouldn't mind asking you before we close. We've been talking for a good 45 minutes now. Is so You've got 700 odd members, I think you said, of your trust, or certainly yeah. a decent number. How many trust directors have you got? I haven't done that bit of research. How, how many people make up your trust? You're the chair. We have how many at the present, I think we have 11 directors and a board secretary. Okay, so I, it, this is a number that comes back all the time. So I, it's always in the you know, it's double figures and, and early teens for most effective trusts. We've been running with between four and eight for the last few years, and, and we need more. So it's, it's just really highlighting the, the, the fact that we're short of trust directors. And in your experience, what people do you need on a trust to make it effective? And that's the key question, really. It's In many ways, it's about quality as much as quantity. We have arguments, no, not arguments is the wrong word, discussions as to whether our board, which has been 14 strong at one point, whether that's actually too many, you know, to actually effectively drive through a decision making and what have you. In recent months, we've had a number of people go and a number of people come on. And at the moment, we're, as you say, we're at 11. But we're very fortunate to have, I think, a, a good range of skills on on the board really either as a director or as an advisor we have a a gentleman who's not a director but who's a a lawyer and is our legal advisor who is very very sharp around all the all the dry stuff around (laughs) legislation and company's house and all that sort of stuff and he enjoys doing that You know, which I think would leave a lot of other people running for the hills. We have a a, a member, Barry Collins, who's a financial controller, is his background, basically. And in fact, he was the financial controller at the football club with Brian Lomax in in the days in 1992. So we've got a, a nice link to our past there, really. Where we maybe lack, although my background is sort of media and communications, having been a former journalist and PR officer, if you like, I'm still pretty old school, you know, and now in the advent of, you know, social media and all the various platforms there are out there and how how we seek to engage with our fan base, you know, one, I think we we need probably a few more younger people on the on the board and certainly those with a a marketing and a, a media background relevant to the present age would also be very useful I mean, I could still do press releases and, and and things like that, but that's very, as I say, very old school. And I'm not that clear on, on how best to utilise all the social media stuff and what have you that goes out there, let alone podcasts and YouTube and all that, Snapchat even, and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we, we could certainly do with, with a, um, a better profile on the board in, in that respect, really. Yeah, um, I, so I would say... Gosh, Legal sorry. background, financial background, communications background, probably three three key areas that you certainly need to have covered. 
Yeah, it's, it, it, we, we've asked the same question of every trust we've spoken to, and and at least those three roles get get offered up by every single trust. So it, it's self evident, therefore, what you need. What I found interesting from speaking to Exeter was they said what you just touched upon, which is you doesn't always have to be a trust director or, or involved. You, you just find a volunteer. If you go onto your mm. terrace, you'll probably find somebody. You know, you've got painters and decorators, you've got solicitors, you've got yeah, you know, you've got everyone on your terrace. You, it's just a matter of finding them, isn't it? It is, and all willing to help the football club by and large if they're long-standing fans. Yeah, yeah. that's uh, an ex- exit to do that, and Wimbledon as well do that very, very well in terms of the way they they run their ownership models and and how they involve, you know, their supporter base into basically, you know, volunteering services for the club. Yeah, so that's, that's definitely something that we need to do a lot more of. So I, I, my very final question for you, because ju- just because we'll be interested in this and then we'll make it slightly more lighthearted. What, do you, what did you think of Keith Curl? Did you like him? And have we got a good manager or not? <laughs> <laughs> that's a bit of a curious egg of a question, really. I mean, when Keith Curl was appointed at Northampton, I wasn't very happy because I thought he'd been very disrespectful of Chris Wilder's side when he was manager at Carlisle. And I've, right. I formed a basic first impression on the uh, thinking, oh, well, you know, he didn't conduct himself very well in that respect. I'm not sure about him, really. When he came in, uh, the, the proof is there. He, he built a side, he, he settled the side down and he built a side that actually won promotion by the playoffs albeit a little bit fortuitously in COVID times with a, with a, another bit of good Northampton town luck <laughs> thrown in there, really. And then, of course, had a really poor start to last season, whereby, you know, we struggled to score goals. We went out the cup to Oxford City. We were pretty much near the bottom of the table and he lost his job in January. But in fairness to Keith, you know, he will argue, and, 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 it's, and it's a fair argument, that when we got promotion, which I think we didn't expect to get, and there was certainly no money thrown at staying in League One, really, he had to get rid of his loan players. The club sold two of their better players or they moved on. And the side we had in League One was inferior to the side that won promotion from from League Two. So he was operating with his hands tied behind his back to a certain extent. So I have a certain amount of sympathy for him there. What we found, though, was that the brand of football tended to be very negative and quite dour. In a way, it was it was a blessing, really, that the play, uh, supporters weren't allowed in the stadiums last <laughs> year, because I think they'd have been making a lot of disapproving noises, shall we say. It was pretty poor fare. And again, you could say, well, he would say, I had this personnel available to me. I was trying to get the best out of a poor bunch. But it wasn't very great entertainment value. And and I don't think there were many sad to see him go, really. Although, you know, he did he did win us a promotion and tried his best, for sure. And although I never met him personally, he always came across, I think, as a pretty good guy to, you know, to be around from those supporters who did meet him. So I wish him well. And, um, yeah, but, yeah, it's a, yeah, a cup half empty and cup half full, really. It's just interesting to hear. I think we're undecided. Uh, I'd say I'd say it's probably fair to say we're undecided. He's not had a great start, but then again, much in the same as you just described, he hasn't got the greatest, you know, hand of cards really to to, to play with, and and he's restricted somewhat by by the owners of the club. He's talked to us in interviews about the fact that he, his uh, Northampton team was dour, but but got promoted. But he likes to likes to tell us his Carlisle team was much more expansive. He he, he loves a three five two, doesn't he? I don't know where he played three five two with you, but he, he does. He, he, that's all he ever plays with us. Is, yeah. is a, back, a back three really, and yeah, yeah, yeah. He does field. like that system. Yeah, yeah. I think in fairness, in Carlisle, his his was a was was a decent side. I think. Yeah, yeah. 
We've also got Nicky Adams from you as well, who I think his legs are gone. Uh, and he's past it, but he's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he always comes off the pitch with a very red face, you know. But that's um, I think he does put a lot of effort in. He was a big crowd favourite, Nicky. I think the the worry is that his legs might just be giving up on him. But yeah. um, ho- hopefully we'll get another decent decent year out of him, and he'll certainly create a lot, if not score a lot. Boundary Park Alert System is produced and hosted by me, Matt Dean. Additional support and research is by Andy Halliwell and Steve Shipman. You can follow me on Twitter at MattDean78 and the show on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at OAFC Podcast. Don't forget to download the Fan Hub app and listen to the show there or by visiting oafcpodcast.co.uk where you can support the work we do by visiting our online merch store, read our blog and get in touch. If you'd like more information about Push the Boundary, visit pushtheboundary.co.uk and if you'd like to know more about Oldham Athletic Supporters Foundation, please visit trustoldham.org. Remember, this is your club and you can have it all, but how much do you want it? Thanks for listening.